0: Our prophetic sermon passage is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 through 19. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham... Abraham, And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as an ascension offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. As it is said today, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing, and not beheld your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, as the stars of heaven And as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Our fulfillment reading comes from Matthew chapter 16. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks you, God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the word that does cut to our hearts, uh, that knows our thoughts and our intentions. And we pray that it would slice us and dice us and make us ready to be your people, to worship you, to praise you, to give you thanks for all your great power, particularly on this day of the remembrance of Pentecost. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible opens up with the entrance to the garden uh, being guarded by an angel. And the Bible ends with the 12 gates in the city of the New Jerusalem comes down to heaven. There are 12 gates, and those also are guarded by angels. Probably in the book of Revelation, they're ministers, they're pastors. But nonetheless... They're guarded by angels. And in between the beginning of the Bible in the Bible, there are over 312 mentionings of gates or gateways or gatekeepers. So it would behoove us as Christians to know and understand uh, what the Bible means by the term gates, particularly because Jesus used the term in relation to himself being the Christ that Peter professes there in Matthew 16. Now, asking why it's important to have some knowledge about gates in the Bible is akin to the question, why does the Bible tell us that the Romans put a crown of thorns on the head of Jesus just before he was crucified? Was it just to mock him as a Jewish king because he didn't have a real crown of, of gold or jewels? Or was it cause him pain as they pressed down on the thorns and made him bleed? Or was it to make him bleed, to give the crowd a sense of bloodlust? Because this is the guy they're going to crucify, right? Foretaste of blood. Now those all sound like good American answers of ignorance. (laughs) But what saith the scriptures to that point? It's also akin to the larger question, why do the scriptures give us so many interesting and seemingly off-the-cuff details? Like that Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, The place of the skull. What's up with that? Or that at midnight, the jail shook. that held Paul and Barnabas when they're in Philippi. And they're singing hymns. And at midnight, why does the text tell you at midnight? Why doesn't it say, you know, after the fourth watch or after they had, you know, dinner or while they were singing or something? Why midnight? Why not just during the night there was an earthquake? There's something very interesting about all those details. And I believe Jesus wants you to pay attention to them, to meditate on them and to mature on them, okay? to grow in them. And I think the same is true about the subject of gates. Now, with 312 uses, there are uh, many uses of gates in the Bible, many ways to use it. You have gates in terms of doorways into a city, right? That's how you get in the city. That's how they close the city. You have the fact that rulers or elders sit in the gates judging people. That's where Boaz goes when he wants to marry Ruth, right? He's got to go to the elders. They know the law. They know the the commandments. And they adjudicate, come up with a a way for him to marry Ruth. Um, Or gates are barriers that keep people out of God's holy space, as in the tabernacle and temple, okay, to keep you from transgressing or trespassing on God's holiness. You also have a metaphorical use of gates in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, you've got to go through the narrow gate, you've got to avoid the wide gate. Jesus is declaring there how easy it is to follow the Jewish leaders of his day to hell. right, And how much harder it is to follow Jesus into the new covenant. Because if you go that way, you may be punished, you may be killed, your parents may go after you through the narrow gate. But part of my sermon today, I want to look at gates from another view, from a prophetic view, uh, following a particular strain of prophecies where the people of God possess the gates of their enemies, looking at how they're used, the gates, in the cosmic battle between good and evil uh, regarding Satan and his minions versus you, God's people. And let's do this so we can fully understand what Jesus is saying to the disciples there in Matthew 16. There we find Peter, the apostle, professing that Jesus is the Christ on the behalf of all the disciples. It's a plural you there when he gets up to speak. Who do you say that I am? And he's speaking for all of them. Uh, And Jesus promises to build uh, his church On their profession of faith. Jesus says to all the gathered disciples. On this rock. Meaning their profession. That Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah. On this rock of a profession. I will build my church. And the gates of hell. Shall not prevail against it. So what in the world is Jesus saying? Uh, What is he promising the disciples. And the church. That they are soon to be leading. Okay. That they are soon going to die for. What's he saying to them? Uh, That they would lead after his ascension to heaven to sit on his throne, to be king, as Pastor Joe spoke about uh, last week. Well, there are many and various interpretations of Jesus' statement, mostly claiming that no matter how strong Satan's attack is on the church, the gates of hell will not crash the church. Here's one take on interpretation of Jesus' statement from Got questions on the internet. I know you all go to the internet to check out things, right? So if you type in, what does that mean? Here's what God questions says. It is clear that Jesus was declaring that death has no power to hold God's people captive. Its gates, the gates of death, are not strong enough to overpower and keep in prison the church of God. End quote. Uh, commentator Matthew Poole, one of us, a reformed guy, an English Puritan, is quoted on Bible Hub, a place I've never been to before I looked it up on this, saying this, quote, "...and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." That is, the power of the devil and all his instruments shall never prevail against it utterly to extinguish it, neither to extinguish true faith in the heart of any particular believer, nor to root the gospel out of the world. Now, is that what Jesus meant? that the gates of hell when they are attacking the church that they might win and overpower the church as the church digs in and circles the wagons Jesus says that they'll survive the attack that things will get bad but will survive like a Timex watch this kind I'm wearing that it can take a licking but keep on ticking is that what's going to happen to the church It just makes it through. And I think those are very important questions for us to ask today. Because things look bad for the kingdom, don't they? Uh, And for the church and for the cause of Christ and church kingdom overall, if you look around. For example, we have tyranny at all levels of government. Think COVID. All right, lots of tyranny there, various kinds. We have home invasions by the FBI and the IRS against pro-life Christians. You even have that lady in England who's praying outside of an abortion clinic gets arrested for standing there praying. She's not even carrying a sign. She's not even voicing it. She's just praying in her mind. Okay. You have illegal immigration overwhelming our Christian culture, what's left of it, by legally allowing hordes of non-Christian peoples in. You have the fentanyl crisis destroying families and children, and that affects the church. Uh, It's not just druggies, but uh, church kids get involved in that. You have the war in Ukraine causing world upheaval, possible nuclear exchange, uh, supposedly two orthodox nations going at each other's throat here, possible starvation around the world because Ukraine, the breadbasket, can't get its grain out, Uh, global climate change from them blowing everything up, supply chain shortages, we all heard about that. That's not really happening much. And to top it off, it's almost June, Pride Month, celebrated even by our government and businesses. Think Target, think low light beer, uh, low life beer, you know. And they're they're talking about this as a possible life identity, directly attacking a biblical view of marriage and personhood, and destroying countless lives through confusion and misery. Uh, The suicide rate amongst homosexuals, transgenders is like 50 to 60%. I mean, they're destroying these people. And yet they continue to tout it. So it can look like the gates of hell, I think, are prevailing. Again, let's see how that plays out biblically. What does it mean that the gates of hell will not prevail? And to understand that, we've got to look at how the Bible used the term. The first use of the word gate in the Bible is not Genesis 3, but actually Genesis 19, where we find Lot sitting in the gate of the city of Sodom when the two angels pull up in their SUV to check out the city, right? But what does it mean that he was sitting in the gate? Well, in the ensuing ruckus uh, that follows the men in the city tell us what it means. They declare, quote, This fellow came to sojourn and he has become our judge. End of quote. They are indignant against Lot because Lot was a traveler who now possesses their gate in judgment. And they don't like that. Why? Because his judgment is to protect the two men under his care from the townsman's ravenous homosexual appetite. Right? No matter what the homosexuals say that passage is talking about, it's not talking about that they weren't being hospitable. All right? The story of Lot's possession of the gate there sets the groundwork for the next use of gate just a few chapters later. And that's in Genesis 22 which I read earlier. Where Yahweh speaks a prophecy about Abraham's offspring. After Abraham had displayed faithfulness in his willingness to sacrifice his only son. Um, What does Yahweh promise? Quote, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sands on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. I talk about an application. Abraham obeys, and all his kids get blessed. What about you, parents? You sin, man. There's a terrible downstream following in your wake. You're faithful, there's blessing to follow. Okay but that was not in my sermon notes, but the Holy Spirit (laughs) fell upon me. Okay. Uh, Because of Abraham's obedience, his offspring will not only be numerous, but will also possess the gates of his enemies. The offspring will prevail over their enemies. And what does that mean? Well, possession means ownership and control. God is giving Abraham's descendants the gates of their enemies, meaning they will control the city because possession of the gates means determining who goes in and out of the city. It means simply owning the city, controlling the city. Now that becomes obvious if you move a little bit further to the right from Jeremiah chapter 39, uh, verse 3. When all the officials, the king of Babylon, who have been besieging Jerusalem, they make a breach in the city wall of Jerusalem. And the verse says this, quote, Then all the officials, the king of Babylon, came and sat in the middle gate. And what happens next? Quote, When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers soldiers saw them, they fled going out of the city at night. End of quote. You see, Zedekiah knew that his rule was up. He wasn't in the gate. The Babylonian magistrates were in the gate, and they were running the city. Okay? They had broken in, and now set up court to rule the city on Babylon's behalf, to possess it. And of course they do. So Zedekiah rides out only to be captured and hauled off to Babylon. And you know the rest of the story. Back to Genesis. Go a few more verses, a couple chapters right. Genesis 24. We see a repeat of Yahweh's promise uh, to Abraham's descendants, but now it's the descendants of Isaac. As Rebekah is about to leave her family, become Isaac's wife, Um, They bless her. Uh, Laban says, quote, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. In other words, may you have a lot of kids and descendants and may they prevail over those who hate them. How? By possessing their gate, by controlling their movement, by owning their cities, by judging them and... Correcting them according to their hatred. The blessing is this may your descendants have the upper hand over their enemies, or may their enemies not prevail. Okay, and not just have lots of kids, but kids that rule. Kids that rule the wicked. Uh, back when I was younger, you could say uh, kids rule, wicked rule, but nobody understands that anymore, so can't throw that in there. Keep moving to the right. You get to Judges 16. We have very interesting story about story about Samson. And you all know this story. Uh, Samson goes to Gaza, a Philistine uh, city and enemy of Israel to visit a prostitute. Not good. Not good, of course. But while at times Samson is a picture of a godly, holy warrior when he's under the power of the Holy Spirit. At other times, he's a picture of faithless, whoring Israel. And that's what he's showing here. And here he's both, actually. He's sleeping with a prostitute, picturing Israel who has been sleeping with and worshiping foreign gods. But he's also Israel's savior when at midnight... Midnight? Why does the text tell you at midnight? That's what you can talk about around dinner. At midnight, he aroused himself and he, quote, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. So you got Samson, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he just doesn't carry the gates. He pulls up the post and then he carries the bar and the gates, puts them on his shoulder and carries them to Hebron. How far away is Hebron? A Jewish town. 20 miles. Okay, so he's got some strength here. Uh, Now, why does he rip up the gates and carry them? Well, think about it. Gaza is now wide open for attack and for destruction. And he's inviting the Hebronites to do so by giving proof of Gaza's weakness. Depositing Gaza's gates right in front of their gates. They now possess the gates of their enemies literally. They should have gotten up and gone, whoa! Those are Hebron's gates. They're wide open. Let's go attack and begin to take back Israel for Yahweh. But, again, you know the rest of the story. They were too cozy with their slave masters. Remember that in the chapter before they had rebuked Samson for killing too many Philistines. Saying to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? So they didn't act in faith and throw off philistine rule and their false gods and said they tied him up right but that was a good ruse he broke dead and killed some more in fact it took samson's whole ministry of judgment over 20 years as an agitator to destroy that coziness between the slaves and the master to finally get them to rise up and throw off the philistine chains under the next judge which is samuel Moving a little further right, Esther two nineteen. You have something similar to Lot. You have Mordecai sitting in the king and the gates of a Jew, sitting in King Ahasuerus' gates in the capital city. And while he's in exile, he's a ruler, a judge, working for the good of Susa, the city. He's a faithful man, believing Jeremiah's command to work for the peace of the kingdom till the exile's over. You know, he says, pray for the city. Uh, pray that it'll go well, so go well for you. He's possessing the gate of his captors in order to lead the affairs of the city and the kingdom on behalf of righteousness and Israel's protection. Now, again, you know that story. While there, he not only discovers an assassination attempt on the king, the king's own bodyguard, and informs the king, but he also thwarts evil Haman's plans to wipe out the Jews all from the gates he possesses. Moving further to right, Psalm 127.5, we have a picture of a blessed man. His quiver is full of children. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. But what's the next statement after that? Blessed is the man who fills the quiver with them. And what's that next statement? You guessed it. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the towns where... Uh, yeah, in the gates. That's right. In the gates. All right. Uh, now I think you can take that reference either way, defensively or offensively, okay? The man and his children are defending his own gate or they're attacking the inning gates. Uh, I wouldn't burn at the stake for either one. But given the other texts we looked at, and particularly Yahweh's promise to Abraham and Rebecca in in those blessings, I think it shows a family or possibly a whole tribe on attack as warriors how good it is to have your children joining you in the attack against the enemy raising up godly seed all right finally moving further to the right in the new testament we have a picture of Jesus on the attack against the wicked city and you're probably thinking well, what is that passage okay when does Jesus put on a sword and attack well, Matthew twenty four, he talks about what he's going to do. And the city is apostate Jerusalem. At the end of his teaching of Matthew twenty four, Jesus details his plans to destroy Jerusalem in that generation by tearing down all its stones, beginning at the temple. And he says this quote So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. He's going to show up at the gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that did happen within that generation. By AD 70, Jerusalem was wiped off the map by Jesus, using the Romans to level the place. And Jesus speaking of himself, the son of man. He's on the attack against the city of Jerusalem, about to possess their gates for the destruction of the city. He's at the gates. He's on the move. I think James even makes this point that, uh, behold, uh, somebody's already at the gates in in James chapter 5. James uh, talking about this is soon to take place. Jesus will own the city of Jerusalem for its judgment and destruction. He'll prevail over that Satan-loving establishment. Remember what they said at his trial? We have no king but Caesar. They have rejected the Messiah. What Pilate? Behold, you're a Messiah. We don't want him. Give us Barabbas. Okay? They rejected uh, Jesus. So he comes to judge them. So now we're in a position to understand Jesus' statement to the disciples in Matthew 16 when he says that he'll build his church on Peter's profession that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's he saying? He's teaching that the church will be on the offense. And the church will be barking at the very gates of hell. And that those gates will give way and be crushed. And the church, meaning you and your children and all its believers and institutions will plunder Satan's kingdom because the strong man has been bound. The church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail in saving Satan's kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Now we see this plundering played out in Revelation chapter 20. Right after the destruction of Jerusalem in Revelation 19 in 70 AD, Satan will be bound. The angel comes down out of heaven and he binds Satan so he can no longer deceive the nations. Freeing the nations up to believe in Jesus and bring their wealth and glory into the new Jerusalem. That's chapter 21. The kings of the land, the earth, bring their wealth into the new city. That's during the thousand years, the millennial period of which we're in today. Okay, thousand being a rhetorical device, a completeness. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Something tells us. Does that mean he doesn't own the cows on on, on hill 1001? No, he owns them all. It's just a good way of saying that. Uh, People leave in Revelation 22. They leave the world by getting their robes washed, by getting baptized so they can enter the city and eat from the tree of life. Remember the the two trees of life, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's not uh, the final age. Okay, this is now. People come in, they have life. They get baptized and they eat. So they can participate in the Lord's Supper and be united with Jesus, their Savior. That's Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Now that binding began with Jesus' ministry. As he declares a couple chapters earlier in Matthew 12, where he says this. And here he's being attacked by the Pharisees. Oh, this guy's really a Satanist because he's throwing out demons by the power of Satan, right? You know the story. Quote, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now that's a rhetorical question. Uh, How can he do it unless he binds the strong man? But Jesus has a point. He's saying, I am at this very moment plundering Satan's house. I am on the move. And Paul affirms that, that Jesus is doing just this, or that, in Colossians 1.13, quote, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's plundering Satan's kingdom, right? You see, Satan is no longer your father. You've been saved from his grasp and adopted into his family, and now you say, Abba, Father, in gratefulness and thankfulness. And that's done by Jesus, your Savior. The gates of hell will not prevail any more against Jesus than they did against Samson at Gaza. The gates of hell will not prevail uh, any more than the wicked gates of Jerusalem stood against the Babylonians whom Yahweh had sent to destroy the city and chastise the people, sending them into exile. In that case, the Babylonians were the good guys. Daniel, as Pastor Thackeray probably taught, was out there with Nebuchadnezzar saying, Burn it, level it. They're wicked. Okay? And you're now a believer in Yahweh. The gates of hell will not prevail any more than the gates of apostate Jerusalem did when Jesus smashed them in 70 AD. Now, we can sum up Jesus' statement this way Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. How do gates prevail? Have you ever seen gates on the march? (laughs) That's a ridiculous question, isn't it? But that's how people think about it. Oh, Satan's attacking us. No, they don't attack. They're immobile. They don't move. They're there to hold their ground. You go to Europe and you see gates that have been standing for a thousand years and they haven't moved. They're there to hold their ground. Hell is not on the offensive. No, the church is. You all are. The church is is marching to all the gates of hell in this world, ready to reclaim every square inch for the name of Jesus, ready to fulfill the Great Commission and disciple the nations, soul after soul, child after child, community after community, smashing gate after gate, possessing them all. And when the church storms the gates of hell, Jesus promises that those Uh, that the church won't fail. The gates will give way. The gates of hell will fall as the church plunders Satan's domain of darkness. And that's been happening for 2,000 years now. So that's how you ought to think this morning of your mission, your worship, your living, your loving, your marriages, your discipling of your children and the others to the the whole Uh, and others whom the Holy Spirit brings to faith as adults. When you go out in the neighborhood and talk to your neighbors and just befriend them, you are crushing Satan's gates. And that's how you ought to think about the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. Unstoppable from glory to glory. The church advances filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by the promises of Jesus. Now, when did that advance begin? Well, at Pentecost, right? Jesus told them to go in the city and wait for what? Power from on high. And the power comes down. There are little altars with fire on top of them. They begin witnessing in everybody's language. And all those Jews who are all corrupt, who Peter says, you murdered the Messiah just 50 days ago. You put to death the Messiah you've been looking for. You guys repent. And right right away, Satan's kingdom starts getting empty. 3,000 that day profess faith with their wives and their kids. So, you know, 15,000, who knows. And And he says, repent from murdering Jesus. Repent from hating Yahweh. Come into the new covenant. Jesus is the Messiah. Repent. Believe on the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, you have baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the promises for you and your children. Okay, that's where it began, was at Pentecost. So today, you need this right understanding of Jesus' teaching to strengthen your faith. If you live by sight, you'll get discouraged. And it's easy to get discouraged in our world at times. You don't see the church as a whole advancing in the world, knocking down Satan's gates. When's the last time you turned on CNN? Hopefully never, but in case. And, and you saw a story about the church smashing the gates of hell. Never, right? Uh, it's not on CBS. It's not even on Fox News. And they have some Bible study women in there, you know. It's not on Twitter or, or Instagram or Facebook. It's probably not chat GPT. Did I get that right? You know? Uh, it's probably, we cannot talk about that because that would offend some people. You know, because the Satanists would get mad. Uh, it's it's Nobody in America publicly talks about the advancement of the church around the globe and uh, around the world. It's out of sight, out of mind, and that's discouraging. So you need this passage because it sets your heart on fire to live for Jesus by faith. It reminds you he's on the throne, ruling, already possessing the gates of hell, smashing and trashing them. And that's why you also come to worship every week, right? To be reminded that your Lord is on the throne, not just on Ascension Sunday, as as Joe said, every Sunday is Ascension Sunday, but the liturgy. Lift up your hearts. What's he talking about? Lift up your eyes as you ascend into heaven, whoa, there's Jesus on the throne. And all uh, the heavenly hosts worshiping and falling down and saying, Holy, holy Lord Jesus, all praise and glory and, and honor be given to you. And they keep falling down. And you're now part of that. We're In, in fact, we're in heaven right now and you're hearing God speak to you. Okay? And that's where you are by faith. And that's why you come to church. Be reminded of that, to, to experience that. Right? Uh, you come to worship... Uh, to, to share with each other what Jesus is doing in your life. Not talk about the Nashville... What sports teams do we have here? Titans? Forget them, okay? You know, you come to talk about Jesus and his kingdom, okay? Not about sports. Um, you, you come to worship and and... What Jesus is doing in your life, in your community, around the world, that's why you have missionaries come and talk. We need that, okay? Uh, His kingdom is advancing through your faithfulness and others. Remember, Jesus prefaced the Great Commission with an encouraging statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, we ought to believe that. You ought to believe that. And live and act and pray and worship accordingly, living by faith and not by sight. And I'll close with illustration. In the church I pastored a long time ago, uh, we had a couple that didn't grow up with this, and they were childless, and they heard me preaching and teaching this kind of thing, and they all of a sudden it, it clicked, and they said, "Oh, the world's not going to hell in a handbasket. Let's adopt a baby, a baby," and they did from China baby girl, because they thought, well, the world's not ending, there is a future, okay? And how old were they? They were 50, okay? When when most of us were done, well, not me, but you all, you know, uh, they're adopting a baby and they raised that girl in Christ because they began to realize there is a future for the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of church. It wasn't Satan's playground. So remember on this day, the Lord's Day the day of Jesus' resurrection over death and the devil. Every week, the gates of hate know their fate. They are repeatedly and weakly reminded as you worship. And now you know their fate as well, and so rejoice. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this great news and for this joyful news that... Uh, The gates of hell will not prevail against us, against our worship, because Jesus is in us and with us. He's empowered us by his spirit. Help us all to remember that we are temples going around, cleansing the world, making it holy. The things that we touch become holy, even as you, Lord Jesus, uh, touched the lepers and they became clean. Help us to remember that, that we are the light uh, shining. Uh, that brings light to the whole world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.